In Ecclesiasticus, chapter 28, verse 22, the inspired inerrant word of God, we read that many have fallen by the edge of the sword, but not so many as have perished by their own tongue. In the year 1271, a daughter was born to King Pedro III of Aragon and Queen Constanza. They named her Isabel after a great aunt, St. Elizabeth of Hungary. In due time, Isabel was married to Denise, the king of Portugal, which is now we know, why we now know her as St. Isabel or St. Elizabeth of Portugal. For his conversion, as a result of the prayers and examples of his saintly wife, King Denise was quite the worldly man. He is a gifted musician and poet. Uh, seven of his love songs are still being played. I was, in fact, I was listening to them as I wrote this. Besides that, much of his poetry is still available. Here's a stanza from one of his poems that paints a pretty clear picture of what his major problem was. The king, quote, I don't know how to justify myself to my lady. Should God lead me to stand before her eyes? One time before, she will adjudge me her betrayer, and with plenty of reason. Close quote. The long and short of it is, besides the two children St. Isabel Bordum, King Denise sired at least seven other children, one chronicler says nine, by other women. All that by way of background to better appreciate an incident from St. Isabel's life that took place shortly before the king's conversion. St. Isabel was accustomed to rely on a very pious and faithful page to distribute alms for her. In time, another page grew envious of him, and in his envy, he suggested to the king that the queen showed a remarkable fondness for that page. The king took the vicious induendo at face value and decided that the innocent page should be quietly put to death. He gave the order to a lime burner. Now, in case someone here doesn't know what a lime burner is, back in the olden days, a lime burner was a man that made quicklime. Quicklime is used for a lot of different things, for example, for whitewash, for mortar. And the way it's produced, the lime burner had a furnace. It's called a lime kiln. And you pile up layers of coal and limestone. And you get it all fired up. It gets 900 to 1,000 degrees, and that limestone burns, and that's where you get quicklime. That's where quicklime comes from. Anyway... The king decided to quietly execute the innocent page, so he ordered a lime burner that if on a certain day he sent a page to ask him whether the king's commands had been fulfilled, the lime burner should take that page and cast him into the lime kiln. For that particular page was justly deserving of death, and the king had decided this was indeed a fitting way for him to die. When the appointed day arrived, King Denise sent the page off to deliver the message to the lime kiln. On the way there, he was passing a church when he heard the bells ring for the elevation. So he stopped and went in and began praying. As St. Isabel's biographer notes, quote, For it was his pious custom, if ever he heard the sign given by the bell for the elevation, always to go thither and not depart till Mass was ended. Close quote. He also made it a point to hear Mass every day, and since he had only been to part of a Mass, and since there were two Masses scheduled to fall that Mass, he decided to stay and hear both those masses. He really was a pious young man. In the meanwhile, the king had grown impatient, wondering if the page had been executed. So he decided to send the wicked page to the lime kiln to find out whether his commands had been obeyed. The wicked page hurried off to the lime kiln, and when he arrived, 
and asked the lime burner the question, lime burner naturally supposed that this page was the one whom the king had sentenced to death, so he seized him and threw him forthwith into the kiln, and he's quickly incinerated. By this time, the innocent page had finished hearing the second mass. So he went to the lime kiln and asked whether the king's commands had been fulfilled, and the lime burner assured him that indeed they had been. So the innocent page brought that message back to the king. who understandably was completely shocked when he saw that page enter. During his inquiries to the particulars of what had transpired, King Denise quickly came to realize the innocence and virtue of the page that he'd so unjustly condemned. The malice of the wicked page, who by divine providence had been burnt to death. At the same time, he also came to much deeper appreciation for the great virtue of St. Isabel, his queen, whom he had so unjustly judged. There are a lot of lessons that can be drawn from this true story. We'll start with the king. Besides his adulterous behavior, he's also guilty of the sin of rash judgment. What is rash judgment? St. Thomas defines rash judgment, quote, when the reason lacks certainty, as when a man without any solid motive forms a judgment on some doubtful or hidden matter, it is called judgment by suspicion or rash judgment, close quote. In other words, rash judgment occurs when a man judges that someone is guilty of evil and condemns him all without adequate grounds for the judgment. King Denise actually was the highest judge in his kingdom, and yet he unjustly condemned a man to death, an innocent man, without even bothering to investigate, without even bothering to look into the facts of the case. That's rash judgment. The great theologian Reginald Garagula Grange explains, quote, Rash judgment is not a simple unfavorable impression. It is a judgment. It consists in affirming evil on a slight indication. If this judgment is fully deliberate and consented to in a serious matter, that is, judging one's neighbor guilty of a mortal sin, the one who judges himself commits a mortal sin. Consequently, says St. Thomas, if we cannot avoid certain suspicions, we should take care not to make a firm and definitive judgment on slight indications. It is a sin against justice. Our neighbor has, in fact, a right to his reputation. Moreover, rash judgment is often false. How can we judge with certainty of the interior indications or intentions of a person whose doubts, errors, difficulties, temptations, good desires or repentance we do not know? How can we judge justly when we do not know the details of a case? God alone is capable of judging with certainty the secret intentions of hearts or those that are not sufficiently manifested. Close quote, Garagou Lagrange. Obviously, the sin of rash judgment is a sin against our neighbor, but it is also offense against God, who expressly forbidden this and has reserved to his son the right to judge mankind. Our Savior tells us, judge not, you shall not be judged. Condemn not, you shall not be condemned. Now, there is a massive amount of confusion about this so-called judgmentalism, so let's clear that up right now. When our Lord commands us that we judge not, lest we be judged, he is not telling us that we need to sign off on every sin and vice as if it's just fine. What does he mean then? The great bishop, father, and doctor of the church, St. Augustine, explains the correct understanding of our Lord's words. 
By this, the Son of God forbids all rash judgments. We don't know the interior of people's hearts. We don't know what they're guilty of. We can see what they might be doing and not approve of it at all, and we shouldn't a lot of the behavior, but we can't judge what's going on. This We don't know what they know. We don't know what their motives are. We don't know what state the interior part of their soul is. The Carmelite author, Blessed Lucas of St. Joseph, points out what causes rash judgments. Quote, According to St. Thomas Aquinas, the tendency to judge one's neighbor proceeds from two causes. Either the person is evil-minded and unconsciously judges others by his own evil dispositions, or he harbors such envy, hatred, or contempt for his neighbor that he experiences a secret delight in thinking evil of him and readily believes any misconception of his neighbor's actions. This should teach us to restrain our judgment of our neighbor because suspicious and unfavorable judgments are a revelation of the infirmities of our own souls. Close quote. Rash judgment proceeds from two causes. Either the person is evil-minded and judges others by his own evil dispositions, or he harbors such envy, contempt, or hatred for his neighbor that he experiences a secret delight in thinking evil of him and readily believes any misconception of his neighbor's actions. It's clear, then, why it was so easy for an adulterer like King Denise to readily believe these accusations against the page and his saintly wife simply because he was judging by his own evil dispositions. St. Thomas has some very concrete advice here that we'd all do well to take. Quote, unless we have evident indications of a person's wickedness, we ought to deem him good by interpreting for the best whatever is doubtful about him. It is better to err frequently through thinking well of a wicked man than to err less frequently through having an evil opinion of a good man. Close quote. St. Bernard gives some practical advice here. Quote, excuse the intention if you cannot excuse the deed, and attribute it to ignorance or surprise or that it happens by chance, close quote. Excuse the intention if you cannot excuse the deed and attribute it to ignorance, surprise, or chance. St. Bernard continues that if the fault is so evident and so criminal there's just no way we can excuse it, then we should ask ourselves this question. Quote, if I had been set upon with the same temptation... And God had permitted the devil to have the same power to tempt me. What might not have happened to me? Close quote. The most terrifying aspect of rash judgment is pointed out by Father John Kiley. Quote, the most deadly effect of rash judgment is that it exposed the sinner to be condemned without mercy at the tribunal of God. The most deadly effect of rash judgment is that it exposes the sinner to be condemned without mercy at the tribunal of God. In rashly condemning your brother, you have furnished to the Lord the matter of your own condemnation. Matthew chapter 7, verse 2. With what judgment you judge, you shall be judged. With what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you again. With what tranquility we should appear before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ if at the hour of death we could say that we never judged or condemned anyone without reason. Close quote. The most deadly effect of rash judgment is that it exposes a sinner to be condemned without mercy at the tribunal of God.
Let's close this section with a saintly example taken from the Chronicles of St. Francis. One day, God granted Brother Leo a vision of a great company of Franciscans, all glittering with light and splendor. There was one far more brilliant than the rest, with such brilliant rays of light coming forth from his eyes that Brother Leo was unable to look at them. He asked who that person was and was told that it was Blessed Bernard of Quinaval, the first companion of St. Francis, and that the light which darted from his eyes proceeded from the good interpretation he gave to whatsoever he saw in his neighbor, and also because he believed all the world better than himself. When he met the poor, all covered with rags and patches, he would say to himself, These people observe poverty far better than I, and thus judge kindly of them as if their poverty had been as voluntary as his own. When he saw wealthy persons clad in rich garments, he said in his heart, Perhaps they perform greater penances and mortifications than I do. Perhaps they wear a hair shirt underneath their rich clothes and secretly chastise their flesh, and they clothe themselves in this manner in order that it is to be avoided being surprised with vain glory. No matter what the situation, he always looked at the most pleasing side, and the innocence of his eyes deserved to have such a reward of glory bestowed upon them by God himself. That is how we ought to judge our neighbor. Now let's turn to the wicked page, who started all this when he grew envious of the privileges St. Isabel had given to the pious page. Quote, Envy is the daughter of pride. It desires the exaltation of self alone, and when it fails, it hates and becomes hateful. For this reason, it takes unusual pleasure in defaming the honor of the neighbor and destroying the peace and happiness he enjoys. Close quote, Blessed Lucas. Envy is a capital sin. It's called a capital sin Latin. Uh, caput is Latin for the head. A capital sin is considered the head of other sins because it leads to other sins. It gives rise to other sins. The other sins that a capital sin gives rise to are termed the daughters. Okay, it's daughters. St. Gregory the Great says that the daughters of envy, the sins which arise from envy, are hatred, tail-bearing, backbiting, joy at our neighbor's misfortunes, and grief for his prosperity. And that's exactly what we saw. The envy of the wicked page gave rise to backbiting. What is backbiting? St. Thomas defines backbiting as, quote, the blackening of a neighbor's reputation by means of secret words, which causes his hearers to have a bad opinion of the person against whom he speaks. The backbiter injures the good name of his neighbor. Close quote. Father John Kiley points out that a man may commit backbiting directly or indirectly. We'll consider four examples of the direct commission of backbiting. Number one, imputing things against a neighbor which never happened. This is known as the sin of calumny, and that's exactly what the wicked page did by making suggestive remarks about the pious page in St. Isabel to the king. Number two, exaggerating a fault committed by another. Number three, revealing without a sufficient reason the real but secret faults of another. Wait a minute, Father. Did you say it is the sin of backbiting to reveal the true but secret faults of another? Yes, if there is not a sufficient reason. 
He has the right to his good name, and as long as his faults are not known to the person to whom you're speaking, and there's not a sufficient reason to reveal them, it is backbiting. Number four, putting a bad spin on the good deed of another, assigning a bad attention to a good deed. Yes, he did do that good deed, but that was only so he'd be noticed. Yes, that was very pious of her, but she's a hypocrite. It's only superficial. Now could quickly consider four examples of the indirect commission of backbiting. Number one, denying the good another has done. He didn't do that. Number two, lessening the good another's done. Wasn't that great? Number three, remaining silent when being bound to approve or confirm the praises due another, especially when questioned about him or when his neighbor is accused of some misdeed. Number four, by praising the act of another so coldly that he diminishes the credit due to him. That's commonly known as damning with faint praise. Okay, quick review. What have we seen? We've seen that backbiting is the blackening of a neighbor's reputation by means of secret words, which causes the hearers to have a bad opinion of the person against whom he seeks. The backbiter injures the good name of his neighbor. We've seen that backbiting may be committed directly or indirectly. We've seen four examples of direct backbiting. First, imputing things against a neighbor, which never happened, also known as the sin of calumny. Second, exaggerating a fault committed by another. Third, revealing without a sufficient reason the real but secret faults of another. And fourth, putting a bad spin on the good deed of another. We've seen four examples of indirect backbiting. First, denying the good that the other has done. Second, lessening the good another has done. Third, remaining silent when being bound to prove or confirm the praises due to another. And or, that's third. And fourth, damning by faint praise, praising the acts of another so coldly that the credit due is diminished. St. Thomas points out that the most serious sin we can commit against our neighbor is murder. Then comes adultery. And in third place comes detraction. Detraction is worse than theft. St. Thomas states, quote, properly speaking, backbiting is a mortal sin, close quote. It's also important to note, as St. Thomas makes clear, quote, we must say that if one listens to backbiting without resisting it, he seems to consent to the backbiting and thus becomes a cooperator in the sin, close quote. In other words, the charity due to our neighbor demands that we must do everything morally possible to avoid backbiting. How do we do that? by showing displeasure, disappointment, disapproval, and if needs be, even correcting the backbiter. But there's even more. The damage done by backbiting must be repaired. There's, in fact, a more serious obligation to make restitution than in the case of possessing stolen goods. This good name of the person must be restored before the original listeners. How can this be done? One moralist sums up the general teaching of the church. The backbiter can make partial restitution by showing honor to the injured party, speaking in a friendly way to him, praising him in general and in particular, and so forth. The backbiter can attempt to dispel the bad opinion his words have made by using such expressions as, when I said that, I spoke too hurriedly. I spoke in anger when I said that. I made that statement without thinking. I was deceived. I didn't know what I was saying when I made that remark about so-and-so. However, if what was said was not true, if it was calumny, the backbiter must say 
that he lied. Father Kiley, reparation is very difficult on the part of him who is bound to make it. When a man steals, he can make restitution without letting his theft be known. But the case is different with him who has to restore the reputation of another whom he has slandered. His obligation is personal. If what he has stated was false, he must show himself in his true character, a liar, a slanderer. If what he spoke was true, he must show that he was an envious talebearer. He must restore the honor of the other at the loss of his own. But is that easy? The proof that instead of being easy, it is very difficult, is that it is not done. Many people are guilty of backbiting. Few make reparations for the injuries they have caused. A lesson taught by St. Philip Neri gives some idea of how very difficult reparation is. One day a woman came to see St. Philip and accused herself of having, having been given to slander. Do you frequently fall into this fault? He asked. Yes, Father, very often. My dear child, St. Philip said, your fault is great, but the mercy of God is greater. For your penance, go to the nearest market and buy a freshly killed chicken. You'll then start walking, and as you walk along, pluck the bird. Once you have finished, return to me. She went to the market, bought a chicken, and set out walking, plucking the bird as she had been ordered to do. In a short time, she returned, anxious to tell the saint of her exactness in fulfilling his directions and wondering what the explanation might be for such an unusual penance. Ah, said St. Philip, you've been very faithful to the first part of my orders. Now do the second part, and you'll be cured. Retrace your steps and gather up one by one, all the feathers you have scattered. But Father, exclaimed the poor woman, that's impossible. I cast the feathers carelessly on every side. The wind carried them in every direction. How can I recover them? It's exactly the same with your words of scan. Like the feathers which the wind has scattered, they've been wafted in many directions by other people repeating your stories. Call them back now, if you can. Reparation is very difficult. We can sum up the whole topic of backbiting by saying that backbiting destroys three classes of people. Those who are guilty of it, those who listen to it, and those who are slandered. Let's close with this story reported by Father Belay of two close friends one of whom had the terrible habit of backbiting. When the backbiter was stricken by a serious illness, his friend encouraged him to consider his salvation and do penance for his sins, but it was like preaching to a rock. All right then, said the friend, at least let us make a pact, a pact that will endure beyond the grave. If you die before I do, you will appear to me within a month, unless God opposes the idea and you will teach me the mysteries of the other life. Dying man promised he would do it. Evidently, God was not opposed, because sometime after his death, the backbiter appeared to his friend, who recognized him at once, was so terrified by his appearance that he was unable to speak a word. The terrifying apparition spoke and said, At the very moment of my death, I was brought before the tribunal 
of the sovereign judge. My accusers were all the people I had injured by my tongue. Since I could neither deny nor excuse what they accused me of, the judge condemned me to eternal damnation. Many have fallen by the edge of the sword, but not as many as have perished by their own tongue.